The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Friday here at Radical Personal Finance, and that means we do Q&A. I speak with you and answer your questions. Today, we talk about the interest rate environment that exists And we ask the question, is it possible to transform society from a society of spenders to savers? Also, should we pay off a mortgage early? Should we and how do we rent out a little bit of our backyard in a highly desirable zip code to put a tiny house on? And the possibility and potential of releasing radical personal finance in Espanol. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host, your virtual, I'm so desperately to say virtual financial advisor, but I I try to keep my language clean. (laughs) There are a couple of meanings that we could draw from that. Basically, I'm your financial friend, the guy who sits here and answers all of your questions, or at least on Fridays I do that. This is the show where we talk about living a rich life today while building a plan for financial freedom uh, in 10 years or less. And on Fridays, that's when you can call me in or you can call me up uh, and ask me your questions. And I really enjoy doing that with you. I really enjoy answering uh, the questions. I like it. Uh, and it's helpful to me. I love the, the two-way feedback in the conversation. I hope you're enjoying these shows. Uh, and I would invite you to be a member of these shows. Uh, if you would like to join a call like this, uh, you need to become a patron to the show. Uh, you can do that at Radical Personal Finance dot com slash patron uh, and you can read all the details there but you need to join and be a patron of the show uh, and then you'll receive access to the information to be able to call in and speak with me and as you'll hear in today's call two things number one i'm willing to talk with you on anything that you would like uh, as uh, as other talk show hosts would say it's an open line uh, i'm willing to just to, to talk with you and uh, about just about anything uh, so you can make comments you can have questions anything you like on that uh, secondly this is a really great opportunity if you would like to get a question answered personally. So I'm intending to do more and more q and I've got lots of emails. I'm going to be doing lots more shows on listener questions. Uh, but I love doing these Q&A shows, uh, frankly, because they're simple for me. Uh, they allow me just to show up and talk, and that helps a lot for me to um, keep the show a little bit more streamlined with my production schedule so I can get more of the back office projects that I'm working on done. So I'd invite you, if you are not yet participating in these calls, to do so. Today on today's call, we have two callers, uh, at the beginning, Jason, and at the end, Mauricio. Uh, so I invite you to call in and become a patron of the, me, I invite you to become a patron of the show so that you can call in and join us on a Friday call like this. Let's get to it. Jason, welcome to the Friday Q and A call. Looks like at the moment it's you and me here sitting here. <laughs> so, welcome yes, to the sir. yeah, welcome to the Friday Q and A call. And uh, I want to give you an opportunity, and uh, I'll sit here and answer questions as, as, as anything you like, and uh, do my best to give you something useful and thoughtful. So, kick us off with uh, with any question that you'd like to ask. Well, I'd uh, be glad to do that. I think I have three on tap, uh, depending on 
where our conversation goes. But uh, first of all, yesterday the Federal Open Market Committee once again uh, decided not to raise interest rates for I don't know how many uh, quarters in a row, but uh, which leaves interest rates at seven to eight year consistent lows. My question to you is, given the low interest rates, the extremely high prices in the market, um, is this a good time for me to take the extra money I have and uh, work on paying down and paying off my mortgage, given a certain rate of return that I know I am paying on my mortgage note? What, if you didn't pursue this course of action, what else would you do with the money? either put it in the bank um, or put it on my mattress. It's pretty much what I would do. Do you think that this money would be something that uh, you would always keep as a, as a safety blanket or is this money something that you would desire to invest uh, in some form or another, open a business, buy a piece of land, um, you know, buy a hot dog stand, I mean, whatever. But any what, right. whatever way that you invest it, would you, would you ever have a desire to invest this money? It would be investable with the right opportunities at the right prices, certainly. Do you have enough money saved where if you chose to pay off the mortgage, it would reduce the balance to zero? No, sir. So the, the way I answer the question, in my best understanding right now, is relatively, uh, relatively simple. Um, the way to decide whether or not you should pay off the mortgage is to figure out what you're giving up by paying off the mortgage. So let's use two very simple examples. If you're giving up keeping the money under your mattress, earning 0%, whether that's your literal mattress or your figurative mattress, there's really you can have $100,000 sitting in a bank account and you get nothing. It's, it's astounding um, at how low the interest rates are right now. So if the opportunity cost of what you're giving up is putting the money – is having the money under a mattress and then turning around and paying off the mortgage, then financially speaking, you're going to be better off paying off the mortgage. And that will do two things for you uh, and that's why I asked the follow-up question of could you pay it all the way off. If you could get the mortgage all the way paid off, not only will you save the interest that you are paying on that money. But also, if you can get the mortgage balance to zero, you will eliminate the cash outflow from your budget and from your life, which can improve substantially your lifestyle. It could free up money to save. It could free up some of your income to spend in other areas that maybe that mortgage is restricting you from, uh, that type of thing. So if you're just simply giving up a 0% interest rate, then yes, it's better off to pay off the mortgage. Now, the flip side, let's say that uh, you're giving up the opportunity or willingness to invest in a productive asset. Let's, uh, I always like to use real estate to real estate simply to keep the comparison similar. But let's pretend that I had $100,000 sitting in a bank account and I had $100,000 on my mortgage, but I could look across the street and there's a house sitting there for $100,000 that I could buy and rent out. Well, if I were willing to take on the risk and the work of being a landlord – I would rather take the $100,000, pay cash for the rental house, keep my mortgage, and then just simply let the tenant's payments pay my rental payments – excuse me, pay my own mortgage payments. 
And that way I've put the money to use in a more effective way where now I have bought a producing asset instead of using it just to pay off debt on a consumption asset and I'm going to have a cash flow. And then I can dedicate that cash flow if you still want to do it, if you want to do it again and again and again and put together some rental houses, you could do that. But maybe you have a a business that keeps you busy or you're just not interested in doing that. You could take that cash flow and just use that to pay down the mortgage. So if you're giving up that opportunity – then uh, you're probably better off going and investing the money. And this is the real bind that people find themselves in is saying, well, what would I invest the money in? Uh, you know, If I invest the money and purchase a, a mutual fund uh, that has historically returned you know, 8 to 10% uh, on my money over time, if you're paying off a mortgage that's at 3.5% and that's a deductible 3.5%, uh, it's hard to make that case that it's not better to to invest the money in the mutual fund. Uh, but if you're just giving up the zero percent, it's better off to uh, you're better off uh, you're better off putting uh, the money into paying off the mortgage. If you just it's financially going to be better. Now the the reason I ask you the question if you're going to pay it all the way off is I learned something the hard way that for me I think is something we don't talk about enough, and and it's this: the major benefit. For you, and I assume you're, you're at a stage in your life at which you're working, uh, you're not financially independent. The major benefit for you to pay off a mortgage when you're working is to eliminate the cash outflow need from your budget. So pretend your mortgage payment is $1,000 a month. Uh, what you want to do is you want to get the mortgage paid off so you can clear the $1,000 a month and not have to pay that. But if your mortgage balance is $100,000 and you've got $50,000 sitting in the bank, if you take the $50,000 and you write the check – you haven't eliminated the $1,000 monthly payment. You've simply lowered the uh, amount of the mortgage balance and thus saved yourself a little bit of interest. So uh, that's something I didn't get until I went through the experiences I went through the last three years, but now I get it pretty pretty loud and clear. And so if I were in a situation where I'm working for money, meaning I'm not financially independent, then what I would do is I would not pay uh, – I would not pay – extra payments, a little here and a little there on the mortgage. Um, and I'll get to the exception that I do see as, as being relevant. <clears throat> but I would not pay little payments here and there on the mortgage. What I would choose to do in that circumstance is I would accumulate the money in a, in a separate savings account. I would eat the cost of the the, the foregone interest savings for a, a few years. Uh, I would be willing to do it. That way I've got all the money there. And if over the next two or three years my grandma dies and and, and I can buy out you know my I can buy out my brother for a half interest of the house that grandma lived in and and I can you know some kind of deal comes up where I can just buy myself some income producing assets I've still got the money or if 3 years from now I've saved the $100,000 then I'll just go ahead and write the check to uh, I'll go ahead and write the check and then go to, from a mortgage balance of high to zero because there's no additional safety gain from owing less money on the mortgage uh, the sa- for people who are workers uh, the only safety comes when you eliminate the mortgage. So from a financial standpoint, you are much safer to have $50,000 in the bank and $1,000 a month cash outflow need uh, in case you get laid off, your, your business goes through a tough time, we go into a tough economy, you make a mistake, whatever it ends up being. You're much safer having the cash to make that $1,000 a month mortgage payment than putting that cash into the mortgage down payment uh, just to get 50% reduction. Is that concept make clear in the way that I explained it to you? Yes, sir, it is. It is. And that's sort of where I am. I don't have a huge chunk of money to pay, but I do have a 
disposable income every month put extra onto the mortgage. Uh, so I understand what you're you're saying. Just Look. save that money right. instead of incrementally paying it because the mortgage itself is the issue. Right. Not necessarily. It's, it's how much I owe is an issue, but mm-hmm. you know, paying you know uh, a couple thousand bucks a year down on the mortgage, I still have a mortgage. Right. So let's so think okay. about it from a safety perspective, and I'll tell you the exception that I would make uh, in in the plan that I've described. Uh, I'm gonna I'm making up numbers. I don't need your actual numbers. Um, you own a house. You own a house that's worth one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You have a mortgage balance of a hundred thousand dollars, and you got fifty thousand dollars in the bank. Um, you lose your job. Well, in that situation, the house is secured by an asset. Excuse me, the mortgage, forgive me. The mortgage is secured by an asset, the house, and that's a saleable asset. You've got $50,000 in the bank, and if you've got a $1,000 a month payment, you've got four point, you know, four years and two months, 50 months, uh, at which you can make that mortgage payment. So if your family's in a bind because you lost your job, you can sit back and you can make that mortgage payment. It takes you a couple – you need. You decide, I need to sell the house, I need to move for a different job or – or something, you've got safety. You can you can make that mortgage payment every month. It takes you a couple of months to shine up the house, get it ready to sell. Uh, you can uh, you can get it listed on the market. It takes a few months to find a buyer. You've got some negotiating room. The buyer gives you one thirty five to move quickly, and you go ahead and satisfy that. And you you've had money in the bank to pay your bills, pay your mortgage, keep everything current, uh, and and move on your way. Now, on the flip side, let's say that you did the opposite. You had a house worth one hundred and fifty, mortgage balance of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the bank. You take fifty thousand dollars. You write down that mortgage from a balance of one hundred to fifty, and then you lose your job. Well, now you've got uh, you've got uh, you've got no money. And even if you reserved back, say, six months of expenses as an emergency fund, you've still only got six months of expenses. And so now you decide something happens. You decide you need to move, get a better job, need to sell the house. You got to take money from your emergency fund to shine up the house and get it ready to sell. Uh, and you're basically stuck because you only got a few months of wiggle room. And so you start to be in a place of desperation. So I don't want people to be there, and I, I realize the error of the advice of just making little bits of, of, of extra money because I think that might it, it doesn't it doesn't create the safety. Now, what are the exceptions? Well, the obvious exception is if you are just going to spend the fifty thousand uh, dollars. You put the fifty thousand dollars aside. You could you could throw it at the mortgage, but instead you leave it in an account, and then six months from now you're down at the RV show, and all of a sudden you come home with a with a fifth wheel. Well. Um, the fifth wheel might enhance your lifestyle and into your money, and you can choose to do that. But financially, you're not going to come out ahead because you would have put that into debt debt reduction, and uh, now you've turned it into uh, more of a consumption item on a depreciating asset. So uh, it might be still the right choice to make because it enhances your lifestyle, but it's not going to come out financially ahead. So that's the obvious risk. The less obvious risk is if you do what I propose, which is just keep the money in a separate account. If you do what I propose, you might uh, not have the psychological enthusiasm of hitting that goal. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're if you're chunking an extra three hundred bucks at the month to the mortgage, and you got the amortization schedule printed out, and it's on the front page of the front uh, front of the refrigerator, and you're putting red lines through those extra payments, and all the families on board, and like, yeah, we're going to get this mortgage gone in three point two years, and and every month you look forward to getting those statements and seeing how much it's gone down. If that gives you extra psychological boost, as compared to just, yeah, we got a pile of money over here in the in the in the savings account. That's also where my advice would be wrong. So you got to weigh those 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 uh, 
considerations uh, in your in light of your actual numbers and your actual situation. Uh, I could see somebody's in a stable job, stable career, they have savings, and they're very motivated and, and they've got a very short-term game plan to get rid of the, to get rid of the mortgage and again 2.3 years. I can see, okay, let's put the chunk there and let's just get focused on this again and again and again. Each month we're making these payments. So that that's how I would handle it. Appreciate that. That answers my questions. That one. Go ahead with the uh, next question. Along those same lines, let me, uh, let me ask this question. Along those same lines, uh, Robert Kiyosaki was on last week or so, and he talked about uh, Sabres being losers. I was um, wondering, as well-read as you are, uh, I read a lot and listen to a lot of folks, too. Do you ever see a day where saving will be valued as much or more than debt will in our culture in America? <laughs> uh, you know, um, I think that savings on a, on a broad-based cultural perspective, uh, so for the broader culture, my answer is no. For a minority of people who are committed to wealth building, and that I don't see any trend on the horizon that would change that being just a tiny minority of people. Uh, for the minority of people, uh, I think the savings is valued. Uh, so let me start with the the, the minority of people. Uh, I understand what Kiyosaki is talking about, uh, but I think it's more marketing hyperbole than it is practical financial advice. The reality is if you have savings, it's going to be a whole lot easier for you to borrow money. Uh, immediately before recording this call, I've just released a show with um, a friend of mine here in town. Uh, this is somebody who is um, very wealthy uh, and uh, very wealthy businessman. We, we talked about it. He, he started as a plumber's assistant when he was in his, in his teenage years, uh, going to high school halftime and then and working halftime. Uh, today, he's an extremely wealthy man. Um, I can't give any figures, but here's what I would say. Uh, I used to drive a tractor on his sod farm, and he'd be coming out, and he pr- would practice. He bought a helicopter, and he'd practice flying his helicopter around uh, and, around the fields. <laughs> so we'd watch him over there flying his helicopter around his farm. So you do the math as far as how much helicopters cost and, and whatnot, and you can, you can take some guesses at his level of, uh, of wealth. Uh, but – the fundamental hallmark all the way through that he said was savings. Uh, and I don't know any consistent investor, wealthy person that I know that I've ever heard of that I respect uh, who wouldn't say that savings is the fundamental foundation of uh, of anything. If you want to go borrow half a billion dollars, you better have some savings and some assets to go with it. Now, um, so – you got to sort through how much of Kiyosaki's message is hyperbole, is differentiation. Remember, in the marketplace, one of the key questions is always, what's my unique selling proposition and, and what's my point of differentiation? Every business needs a point of differentiation. His point of differentiation for 20 years has been, you don't need anything except the knowledge that I give you in my books and courses and, and, and seminars. You don't need money, no money down, et cetera. If you investigate his courses and his classes, everything is always, you don't need money, just open it up on a credit card. So that's been his Stick that he's taught for 20 years. So I wouldn't expect him to come off of that at this point in time. Uh, I don't think it's prudent financial advice. So among the wealthy and among 
those who are interested in becoming wealthy. Savings is the cornerstone. Now, on a broad scale perspective, I don't see how in our current culture, I don't see how savings uh, will become valued by the majority. Uh, the majority of our society um, buys fully into the idea of consumption leading to happiness. Uh, sadly, I think the majority of our society has been trained to be um, easily herded sheep from the perspective of uh, largely their schooling background. You know, John Taylor Gatto wrote a book called Dumbing Us Down. Now, it's a provocative title, but uh, you read his evidence and sometimes it's hard to, hard to argue with it. Uh, the average person from a, from a cynical perspective, it's not hard to look at the mainstream U.S. American consumer and, and not just wonder if it's kind of like the matrix, uh, you know, if the mainstream person isn't just uh, essentially a body that goes to work and, and works and buys and that stimulates the economy and they, they work so that taxation can be pulled off. And like, it's, it's hard not to see the parallels once you start looking around with an honest, uh, honest viewpoint. And I don't see anything uh, – I don't see anything in political culture, in popular culture, in anything that's going to turn the tide uh, with, with one exception. Um, so in, in the last kind of nail in the coffin, think back to George W. Bush in the wake of 9-11. Uh, and if, 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 I'm, if I'm connecting my speeches properly, this may not have been when he was standing in the rubble with a megaphone. But the speech saying, you know, support America, go to the mall and buy when you got a when you got someone in that situation, you got the president of the United States saying, "Do your patriotic duty and go out and spend money." That's symptomatic of what's happening in the broader culture. Now, I do think that what happens is uh, when people face tough times, they wake up and realize, "Hey, I was stupid." And what's interesting is if you look at the level of household debt and you run the charts over last um, since the the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. Uh, the levels of household debt have stayed co- have stayed constant and have declined in many areas. Credit card debt is down. Uh, I can't accurately cite the statistics off the top of my head, but I have looked at that and I have noticed that. So I think when you face difficult times, when you face recession and depression, people wake up and they realize, man, I've been an idiot. Uh, it's kind of like the, the the debt moment that happens. People wake up and say, um, man, I was stupid. Why was I spending money so crazy? And they stop buying new cars and they start driving their existing cars a little longer. They start putting everything on the credit card because they realize, hey, I need to do something a little different. So I do think that if we face – if and when we face difficult times, uh, should that happen, whether it's a long, prolonged recession or depression, should that happen, that could have a transformative impact. Think about – For me, my grandparents went through the depression. You think about how different most of our parents or grandparents that went through the depression. That experience permanently altered their financial behavior and paved the way for massive wealth. So if there were external circumstances that came in, a significant prolonged uh, recession, depression, very difficult times, man, I don't want to go through that. uh, But that I could see having a major cultural impact because it has before. What do you think, Jason? I uh, I would tend to agree with you. Um, this could be a very long conversation on this issue, but you know, with a debt-based money supply, every line of credit, every credit card, every loan that we take increases the money supply available. But there has been a cultural shift say, in the last forty years or so from 
every commercial you see on TV just about is about the credit card, what's in your wallet, uh, borrow this, buy this, buy this. I think it's going to take a um, a massive cultural shift, and it may take another Great Depression of some kind like you're, you're talking about uh, to see change in attitude. It really is an attitude, I think, uh, to behavior for consumption. So I agree with you there. Yeah. Next question, Jason. Go ahead. All right. I think I just have one more, and you may have already uh, covered this a little earlier. Uh, this will be my last question for you today. Is um, you know the big, uh, well-known folks in the uh, financial independence early retirement realm uh, that you've talked to that you know. What would you say if you had to break it down? The, the consistencies that you would find um, with their ability to save to be financially independent. You have such a wide array of uh, people, personality types, professions, those sorts of things. If you had to break it down to a few basic fundamental consistencies between all of them, do you have any thoughts on what that might be? There's probably a difference between the pundits, those who are teaching on the subject, uh, as compared to those who are practitioners. Were you thinking about those who are following through with the early retirement plan, or were you thinking primarily about those who are teaching? I would say those that are following through, you know, the uh, Matt Fientes, Mustache, Jim Collins, Go Curry Cracker, you know, the Root of Good, uh, all those guys that are actually uh, sort of going for it and living it uh, as compared to the pundit part. So as far as unifying themes, it's it's becoming increasingly uh, a large movement of people from all walks of life. I wouldn't say that there's any dramatic mainstream cultural impact. It's still a tiny, uh, laughably small minority, and laughable, I use that word just to say it's a, t- it's a small minority of people across the general culture. Uh, but as far as the people that I interact with, the listeners of my show, uh, I can judge best from that. I mean, there's people from all different perspectives and all different walks of life. Uh, there's, and then people with whom I interact with, uh, there are probably some, uh, some common characteristics. There seems to be a high percentage of, of engineers. Uh, for example, I know that Mr. Money Mustache did a survey of his readership at uh, one point several years ago, and the dominant occupation was the occupation of an engineer. But that would also align nicely with Tom Stanley's research, talking about how engineers are some of the most effective, uh, prodigious accumulators of wealth, to use his words. Uh, they, as When comparing their levels of net wealth to their expected wealth based upon their income levels, engineers are extremely efficient at converting income to wealth. So I don't know that that's necessarily a hallmark of the early retirement community as much as it is that profession. Uh, the type of person who's an engineer is, is more likely to be a careful, thoughtful uh, person who, who presents a careful, thoughtful approach. So I'd say people come from all walks of life. I guess the biggest thing that I see is I see people who pursue early retirement, financial independence – because they don't want to be stuck. Uh, they don't want to come from a place of feeling trapped. So whether it's they're trapped in cubicle land or they're trapped in an occupation they don't like, 
once you grasp the simple concept that I can take my current income, my current job, I don't have to go out and make a bazillions. And this is a trap that people, a lot of people are, are stuck in, uh, the trap of, of saying, I've got to be, make a million dollars a year. You don't. And that's what's nice about the early retirement community. You don't have to go and make a million dollars a year. Uh, but once you recognize I can just take my current income, but what I can do is I can control my expenses. And controlling expenses is something that you can do. And everybody can see, at least intellectually, how I'm capable of reducing my expenses. If, if, and if somebody doesn't, all you got to do is give them the example. Listen, uh, I was earning you – know, I used to live – when I was in college, I used to live on $2,000 a month. And here I am spending eight. You know what? I had a pretty good time in college. So I could – uh, live on two thousand dollars a month again, uh, or if I have kids and I have family now, okay. But I could probably get closer to two thousand than eight. So once people recognize that all I've got to do is save a high percentage of my income for a relatively short period of time, that's like a magic key that unlocks the door. Well, if I just do that, then I can have this. I don't have to be a genius investor. I don't have to be a genius entrepreneur. All I got to do is control my expenses and, and, and do some wise things. I think that's why it's taking off, and that's what gives a sense of hope uh, to people who feel a little bit stuck because it's very, very doable. Uh, so that would be the common uh, common trait that I see in the early retirement community. Uh, but what to look, you know, as as a community grows, as my audience grows, uh, I'll be able to survey people more and gather better data that maybe we can answer that uh, that question. I've uh, got a new um, 760 phone number that joined us. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, ask a question if you like. Hey, Joshua. This is Mauricio from, uh, coming from San Diego. Mauricio, yes, welcome. Joined, uh, thank you. Um, I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> Not a celebrity, <laughs> just a friend. Okay, well, thanks thanks for that. Um, so my, my question is quite simple, and I hope I can express myself right because I'm not a English speaker natively, but uh, here's my question. I live in San Diego, and the weather, we really can't complain about the weather, and I've been considering for a while, together with my wife, uh, renting a space on my backyard um, for tiny house um, travelers, basically, or builders. Um, there seems to be some demand in my area um but it's not the only thing that is in my mind of renting them a space but it's also the aspects of my wife and my recently born daughter she's 10 years uh 10 months old um should i just rent the space but i'm concerned about their security uh what's the process for renting out it's not a regular tenant it's a new tendency i guess so what's the process that i need to do um to make sure that they're actually good tenants. Um, I see this as a good investment, but it's not as secure as other investments. It's not very, it's kind of risky. Um, I've reached out to some people and they've said they don't need much things done for my part. They just need a place to park their RV or their tiny house. So I was wondering, uh, it may not be an answer that you have at the moment, but it's just an idea if you could interview someone that can explain to someone on the renting space for a parking for parking for a uh, a tiny house uh, owner um, to see what what things we need to consider for that part because it's easy to rent them out but then what are the rules to if you don't like them to pretty much break the deal sure so that that was basically my question 
Couple of couple of follow up questions. First, do you own the property that you are considering renting out, or are you renting the property? I own the the property. We bought this house about a year and change. Okay. <laughs> about a year and a couple months ago. Great. Uh, so, if you own the property, then you're going to have the ability to the legal. You might have the legal right to rent it out uh, without breaking uh, tenancy. Uh, you know the a restriction on subletting uh, your land or your apartment. Do you know anything or have you researched anything about the local municipal codes? No, I have not. This is fairly new, but what I'm trying to do, um, it's um, this people that I reached out to, they said they have a meetup group. They uh, meet every month and there's an upcoming meeting where people that are owners of tiny houses, people that are actually um, looking for someone to rent their space will probably attend. So this group is actually going to cover all, all of those things. So I'm looking forward to attend those meetings to answer some of my questions. That would be a, where I would start. Uh, the tiny houses, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the concept, there is a movement of people who build tiny houses. And essentially these houses are sized in order to fit on a trailer. So in your mind, think of the size of a travel trailer, usually much smaller than the largest fifth wheels, maybe 20 feet in length um, would be normal. And they build them on trailers in order to be able to park them and avoid having them registered as houses. But they, instead of using an RV type of approach. They build them looking like houses so that they're more comfortable, they're better insulated, more solid construction, more of the residential field, and because a lot of people just think they look cute. Uh, so that's what a tiny house is. Uh, the idea is by building it on a trailer, it can be registered and is registered as a trailer. Uh, and so it doesn't have to be registered as uh, – it doesn't have to follow building codes. It's just a trailer. Whether or not you can – Legally do this is going to depend on the municipal codes there, and there are two things that you'll need to watch out for. Many municipalities have code restrictions on the placement and visibility of trailers. Uh, So for example, where I live here in Palm Beach County, uh, if you have a boat or an RV or uh, a trailer, you can't park those things on the front part of your uh, house. You can't park uh, an RV legally in your driveway. It has to be hidden back on the side or back of your house and usually up behind with a six-foot privacy fence um, uh, barricading it. I am an expert on Palm Beach County code <laughs> based upon extensive run-ins with code enforcement. So you cannot legally park a boat or RV in your front yard. So the first thing is uh, since it is a trailer, you would have to check those codes and see if the location qualifies. It very well could. If you have a cute little backyard with a little tree and there's a privacy fence around it, you could very well get a a trailer back there. The second thing would be if your municipality has put in place any codes for tiny houses. So with their growth in popularity, as with anything, uh, the government feels that they need to regulate things. And so the interesting thing is in this case, sometimes the regulations are uh, going to be promoting this idea. Uh, many municipalities are trying to promote things that are green and eco-friendly. And so they recognize that a lot of times people who are living in this manner are having less of a an impact. And so they're trying to be accommodating with the legislation, uh, especially in the places where there are large communities. I don't know if that's the case in San Diego. Um, and if you were in Portland, I would, I would bet money that there are 
codes, new codes that have been passed uh, that are uh, that are uh, uh, regulating the tiny houses. So just check into that. Start at the meetup group and then get into some of the online forums. I don't know where it is, but I'm sure there's a tiny house forum that you can dig into and they'll tell you that. If the city will not get on your back for it, and I would bet that you could find a way to do it without them getting on your back. Uh, if the city would, get, would not get on your back for it, then I think it's a great idea. It's a way to take uh, some of your property and make it a little bit more productive. And uh, I think it's an awesome idea. You might be able to gain a great neighbor. Uh, you can gain a little bit of extra income. You can take some of your unused property and transform it into a more useful uh, into a more useful purpose. You'll have to figure out uh, the tenant will need an electrical cable and they'll need a water hookup. Usually they don't uh, they don't use sewers. They usually use a composting toilet in the tiny houses. So uh, you can, but they will need a, a water hookup and an electrical hookup. So you have to figure out how to meter that or to include it in the price of the rent. But I bet you would have a lot of takers if you started advertising it uh, in San Diego and advertising the real estate. Uh, I think you'd have a lot of takers. I think it's a great idea. Is that helpful? It certainly is. Um, and, and I know it's kind of a personal question. Um, since, I, I, since I've been following you, I know you have two children and they're still in a young age. Um, and I just want to hear out what your opinion is. And will be, would this be something that you'll do? Not from the investment perspective, that is something that is easy to make money, but would you, would you have someone renting your space uh, living next to you, um, would you be concerned about what kind of people they're renting from you? What would, what, what would be your answer on that? What would be your opinion on that? Yeah, I would absolutely, uh, I would absolutely do it, uh, but I would do it with normal, reasonable precautions. So I would conduct, I would conduct my uh, engagement with the person in the same way that I am. Uh, going to do it with a potential renter of any kind. Uh, so I would uh, do a credit check. I'd do a background check. I would just follow my my spidey sense. <laughs> and, you know, does this person, uh, do the hackles on, on the back of my hair, on, on the backles of my neck come up? Is there something that I sense that's, that's wrong? A few things that I would look for is I would look for uh, how do they maintain, you know, their house? How do they maintain their car? If someone is going to go through the the work of building a tiny house, uh, I, that right there, in as it stands right now, as we record this in March of 2016, that's an unusual type of person, and it's I would say probably very likely to be a person of of, of solid character. Uh, that's not a normal. This is not a normal thing that to do in our society, and the people who are doing it are they have a vision, they have a dream. Uh, I they just I just don't you don't get the same. Uh, you don't get the same uh, idea of them somehow being uh, undesirable or dangerous. Uh, I just don't see it. Uh, I, I don't personally. I, I mean, all of the all of the the homeless people that I interact with. I mean, some of them, of course, um, uh, you have to be careful with. But generally, I don't find that people, even people who are, live on the streets, I don't find them to be. Um, I mean, they're. they're, they're they're just people you often, sometimes who need some help, uh, and so when you get someone who's uh, drugged out and, and, and addicted, that's you got to be very careful, of course, with a young child. Uh, 
but even you know, people live in cars, people live in RVs. There's a big difference between that versus sometimes the people that you find you know, locally going into some trailer park somewhere. There's a very different class of person. So I would not consider the type of person just in general um, stereotyping. I wouldn't consider the type of person who's going to build a tiny house that's very cute and well-painted and they spent $40,000 on the thing to have their little private place to live. That's not, it's not trailer trash. So uh, I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I would take I would take precautions. Uh, check them out. I think, frankly, I mean, I think it's really healthy for for kids to be exposed to as broad a range of experience as possible. But of course, you are responsible for the health and safety and well being of your kids. So if you sense somehow that something is amiss, uh, I mean, we've got to be careful. We, we we live in a world of, I mean, the the the. the the task we face as parents in our modern era is daunting. It's extremely daunting. Uh, but even just statistically, uh, you know, people who abuse kids are often not strangers. They're often family members. So yes, we have to be careful and you should care for uh, – you need to be careful. But I, I would – me personally, I would pursue it. Well, definitely appreciate the insight and your personal response. I, I There's definitely a lot more discussion between – my wife and I about this option. Um, we are already we already own another house that we're renting now. So uh, we like the idea of renting out and kind of building a well, real estate investments. And the way we wanted to do it here in San Diego because um, housing is is quite expensive compared to other areas or where I used to live. Um, we wanted to sort of supplement our, our cost of housing by by kind of renting out a space that we're not using at the moment. So that was the idea, but I, I definitely need to talk to my wife again and, and discuss this further and maybe go to this meetup group and do more research about the, the subject. Um, the other thing that I, I since I, I joined the uh, Facebook group, and it's this, this will be short, but I, I've heard you speaking in Spanish, so I don't know what your popularity would be in the Spanish speaker world in the U.S., but I, I think it will be an idea for something or for thought for you to consider expanding for the uh, natively speaking Spanish speakers, if you ever consider doing a uh, a podcast or an episode in Spanish, I don't know what your Spanish is at the level, but I've heard that you you spend uh, much time in Nicaragua, and I'm I'm originally from Mexico, but I'm just throwing out the idea out there. Yo he querido hacer radical personal finance en español por muchos años, pero um, yo no tengo el tiempo. Y mis habilidades en español uh, son, bueno, yo puedo comunicar, pero no tengo un alto de, de grado de fluidez. Y para hacerlo, me gustaría tener que uh, practicar uh, y hacer mucho. Y algún día, uh, bueno, vamos a ver, algún día uh, probablemente voy a hacerlo, Posiblemente un día a la semana, algo así, hacer rarco personal finance en español. Yo creo que yo tengo el domain name, pero <laughs> algún día. So you can judge for yourself if I would be capable or not of it, but uh, uh, but that I would love to do it someday. Uh, all I said for those who don't speak Spanish, I'd love to do it. Uh, I've wanted to do it. I just don't have the bandwidth right now to do it. So if any Spanish-speaking listener wants to do it, take my stuff and run with it. Uh, there's a huge opportunity in it right now, uh, and I'll get to it when I can, but I won't be disappointed if others have pursued it uh, on their own. Oh, thanks. Uh, I definitely consider you have a pretty good level of uh, speaking Spanish and fluidity, so you definitely speak Spanish pretty good. Um, the reason for my, my idea is because I think 
me being uh, from Mexico, I'm actually a U.S. citizen, but I, I, I'm originally from Mexico, and um, I see the Latin American community actually lacking also a lot on personal finance, because I do hear a lot of uh, um, U.S. Americans actually being prepared on this subject, but I, I see a lot of poor areas and people lacking on this sort of um, education. So that, that's why I think if someone out there would be like, with your level of preparation and education, offering this, this, this knowledge would be great for, for those people. So that's, that's where my idea came from. So I'll give you, Mauricio, the, 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 the other more important question is, in considering the idea, one of the things that I've struggled with is what the appropriate way to do it is. And I'll share my observations, and I would, um, I would ask you for your feedback on this. But uh, where I live here in West Palm Beach, uh, it's different than Miami, uh, but in West Palm Beach, the majority of the Spanish-speaking community here in West Palm Beach uh, – most of the people of Hispanic background are acculturated. They speak both – they're bilingual. They speak both Spanish and English like you. They're fully acculturated. Uh, it's at the bottom levels of society, the, the, uh, the, the maids, the, the nannies, the, the, the lowest paying jobs who are not acculturated. Uh, and so I talk a lot. For example, when I hire guys, I hire a lot of um, – uh, I have hired from time to time. I'll hire some guys to to help me and go down to the uh, the day laboring place and hire guys. And they're usually from Mexico, Guatemala, um, something like that. And I hire them to work with me. And 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 I always just ask them and, and probe them on the situation. And the biggest challenge with those who are Spanish immigrants to the United States who are unacculturated, um, with whom I've interacted, is the level of financial education that they need is extremely basic. Uh, they're not working professionals who are engaged in the community. They need to learn how to. Um, they need to learn how to, uh, you know, build a, get a credit score. Um, most of the ones who, with whom I've interacted, they're not here. They're not here legally. They don't have papers, uh, and so they're engaged in. In it's not that they can't get jobs, but uh, but they're engaged in in work that's necessarily low paying. And I just don't have enough experience in that in that world to know how to really be helpful and effective. Uh, I, I don't know how to, to do anything other than to share some basic, um, some basic advice. But I mean, you know, when I was fixing up my house, I had a couple of guys that worked with me for a few days and spent a lot of time with them. They're from Guatemala. Uh, and we talked a lot and I mean, they're living on $400 a month and, and then every bit and they're making, I'd say if, if memory is right, they're making about $2,500 a month and they're spending two grand. They're sent, they were sending two grand back to their family. Uh, and they were living on four or $500 a month. So I don't know how to, I guess I just don't have enough experience working with people in that world on a daily basis to feel like I have anything to contribute. Uh, I could contribute to people who are um, moving up in the immigrant ranks where they've gone from um, from day labor or off the books jobs into uh, you know mainstream jobs. I can contribute there. But then my other concern is on a global basis, um, I mean, as you well know, Mexico and financial success in Mexico is very different than the United States. And one thing I learned traveling in Central America, as I have, and briefly in Colombia, that's the only country in South America I've been to, is pure and simple, it's not the same. And so here in the United States, I can speak with confidence regarding opportunity. I can speak with confidence regarding um, 
the importance of work ethic. And, and I can speak with confidence that if you can set goals. But man, I tell you, Mauricio, I, I, down in, I spent some time in Nicaragua, and you've got half a million people in Nicaragua who are just incredibly wealthy, and you've got six million people who, who, who are trying to figure out where's the next where, – where's my food coming for tomorrow? And I guess I feel distinctly limited. I'm not so confident that I really have something to offer. Uh, I don't know how to solve those problems. I, I don't know uh, – my, my experience is so limited uh, that – I would I, I I really I don't have it's not only the language thing. I could I could deal with the language thing, but I just don't I just don't know that I have anything to offer. And so uh, I'd love to help somebody who 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 knows more. I re, you know, it's not a current source of research for me, but I do try to pay attention and my hope is that as my my hope is that as freedom continues to spread around the world primarily through technological access and as the barriers break down as the uh, I mean that's 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 what I hope. And so as societies become more free uh, and access becomes more available, that as is already proving to be the case, that the levels of poverty around the world will be lifted. Uh, but I've just – I guess I've just felt – I felt inadequate. Uh, like I don't know if my stuff uh, w- with exception of just the basic instruction, I don't know if the, the, the experience I have is applicable in an international context. Uh, I really don't. Do you have any insight on from your experience uh, on those questions that I think about? Well, I, I definitely agree with you. I, now that you express it in that way, I think it does make sense. You you knew who your you have an idea who your market was, and I can definitely relate to that. You, you're kind of looking for people that are actually somewhat educated in the uh, in the personal finance world, and they're trying to improve it, but. It's definitely a different market, different um, conditions of life. Um, your your knowledge and your expertise really doesn't apply, as, as you mentioned, the same in different countries around the world. It's, it's, there's a lot of different variables, so I, I do agree with you. So it, it was just a wild thought on my behalf. Uh, just, well, I want thinking that what I do. Uh-huh. Yeah, Go ahead. I, I I would like to do it. Uh, so I, I guess I'm soliciting your feedback and other people. Not not necessarily now, but in the future. But uh, I think I could. So I do believe that I could craft a message that would be effective, and I do believe I could serve um, the Spanish speaking community. Um, I really do believe because I believe the principles are. Uh, some of the principles – number one, the principles of wealth are the same. Some of the, the concepts that I teach are the same in every place. Um, the the two things where I get uh, – where I do feel limited is number one, if I were to speak and teach the unacculturated Spanish uh, – unacculturated Latinos here in uh, the United States, I would quickly feel frustrated with – Working at that level, I, it's, it tests my patience. And by the, working at that level, I mean explaining the details of how to put together a budget, explaining the details of 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 establishing a credit history, explaining the details. I worked with. I was when I was a financial advisor. I was the uh, only certified Spanish translator um, in my office, and so I would go and and work with the Spanish people. And often, what I found was it was just so challenging because there was such a there was a there was a base body of knowledge for an unacculturated immigrant that didn't exist in their experience. And it, I found it 
hard to be patient and slow down and feel confident that they were fully grasping the things that I was explaining to them. Um, so I feel like I could do it, but I would have to really work at it. And then on the global scale, um, I guess I just want to recognize the reality that some principles are transferable, but some of the specifics are not. So if I were to do it, I could not do it with the specificity that I do in radical personal finance. I would have to do it um, by focusing on those core principles that are true in every culture and then encouraging the listener to search for the the way to apply those principles uh, – uh, the way to apply those principles in their own context. Uh, there are core principles – but I think a lot of times we as U.S. Americans, uh, and I certainly was this way, but we as U.S. Americans are arrogant with the idea that you can just be successful anywhere if you just go anywhere. And I've, 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 learned, I've traveled enough to know it's simply not the case. There are um, – you can always rise. Uh, you can apply certain principles and actions on a global basis to where you can make improvements. But there are structural problems in many societies that will lead to the exclusion of certain people from certain opportunities. Uh, and uh, and it's just a fact of life. And so those things are going to have to be either solved at the, uh, uh, at the level of regulation, opening up uh, additional freedom so that the society can become more mobile, or they're going to have to be solved with you know, technology kind of forcing it. And that's the trend that I see that I'm very happy about is technology is bringing access. Uh, you know, the, the rural farmer now has access to the world markets. And I remember um, – I mean this concept has been around for, for years. When I was in college, I read Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat and it talked about how the, the massive – revolution that is happening with the access to technology. Ten years later, it's all it's, – it's exactly – I mean it's, it's way better. I remember as an illustration, I remember when I was in college, there was a project that was trying to be funded where this, uh, this NGO, uh, non-governmental organization, was trying to put together this computer for Africa. And it was supposed to be this cheap $200 computer with a solar panel and, and it was like – it was all the rage. And then the iPhone was invented. And today, when I travel, <laughs> I mean, number one, everyone has a cell phone, and in a few years, everyone is going to have an Android because what you've taken is now we could take a $50 Android, and that $50 Android does way more than that, uh, than that computer did when I was in college. And so that trend is, is, is irreversible, and it's gonna, it is transforming societies now, and I'm very hopeful that it will continue uh, to transform societies. But in the meantime, I've got to build a foundation here in the uh, in the English uh, speaking world, and uh, do my best. Mauricio, one other comment on your uh, one idea for you on your tiny house is: um, Do you know what the rent that you would get from one tiny house might wind up being? Any guesses? I think it might be around the five hundred to six hundred dollars uh, a month. Okay. Consider also, in addition to just possibly renting out the lot for one person, 
consider the idea of you buying or building a tiny house and renting it out instead of to one person on a monthly basis, renting it out on a nightly or weekly basis on Airbnb. And check to see if there might be a demand for that in your area. I know there are a lot of people who are doing that successfully, and it's possible that you could go from, say, $500 a month to a much higher number based upon renting it out by the night. Uh, And then uh, that could be even a more productive way to do it, Uh, and especially if you have the the capital to buy a tiny house or to install one. Of course, check your your rules, but but that could also be a much more productive way of of earning a higher revenue model. So I wanted to recommend that to you as an, as a, an idea. That definitely sounds like a, a very approachable and, and feasible idea. Um, yeah, I, I've started asking, um, there's a contractor that has come to our house, how much would it cost? We actually built, they call it a companion suite, and I think it's allowed by the code in, in our municipal um, municipality, I'm sorry, and it, that that option was actually quite expensive, so that's when I started looking out for the low investment options, such as just renting out the space. But um, Airbnb, that in fact there are there are a few houses around my block uh, that are actually are doing that. So that's it's good to know that there's market out there. Yeah, you have to find out. Any other questions I can answer for you for you, Mauricio? No, those were pretty much my questions so far. And let me let you know that. Uh, this has been pretty, pretty good. A pretty good investment supporting your show. Uh, I think I just started joining and being a patron of, of your show, and I think it's been the best spent fourteen dollars that I've made um, so far. So I'm very glad I did so. <laughs> I'm so glad. Uh, uh, thank you for saying that, and thank you for letting me know. It's uh, uh, I'm working hard to produ- provide all the value that I can, and I, I the, the thing that gives me the most joy is just to hear people implementing some of these ideas uh, because, you know, the transformative influence, I mean, if you can, whether it's build a, 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 an additional suite or rent out some of your yard, I mean, $500 a month is, is a substantial amount of income and that can free you up financially. That can make a difference in your life uh, and that'll allow you to invest in the lives of other people. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you all so much for the questions today. I uh, appreciate you calling in uh, on today's Q&A show.